Hello and welcome to Brain in a Vat. Uh, Mark O usually introduces our guest, but this, this week I'm doing so because uh, Mark Leon, Professor Mark Leon, is with us today. Uh, he was my lecturer all the way through undergrad, my supervisor through honors, masters, and PhD. And uh, I'm sure he's tired of, of me by now, but we're bringing him back um, for an episode of Brain in a Vat. Um, he's a professor emeritus at Wits University in Johannesburg. And uh, today he's going to be speaking to us about free will. Uh, Mark, please go ahead. First, I just want to introduce a little bit of terminology to make sense of what we're going to be talking about. So the question is going to be whether freedom and determinism are compatible. And in order to get at that, we need to know what determinism is. Determinism can be variously understood as suggesting either that every event has a cause, such that given the cause, the event had to occur, or that every event follows from a set of initial conditions together with the laws of nature, or alternatively, that the way the world is currently is a function of the way the world was at an earlier time together with the laws of nature. So the picture one gets from determinism is that there's just a single track that the world is going to take over time. Freedom, we can just simply say, is the thesis that under certain conditions, an agent acts freely. And the question then is going to be, under what conditions is it the case that an agent acts freely? Now, in thinking about freedom and whether it's compatible with determinism, there are two main positions. The first is that of incompatibilism. Incompatibilism involves two distinct positions. The first position is that of libertarianism who hold that we are free and so the world is not determined. And the other position is that of the hard determinist who holds that we've got reason to believe determinism is true and therefore we are not free. It cannot be the case for either of those that we are free and determined. Opposed to incompatibilism is the compatibilist position and compatibilist argue that it's possible for the world to be both determined and for us to be free under certain conditions. There are different versions of compatibilism as there are different versions of incompatibilism. And I suppose for the most part today, I'm going to be focusing on one version which really suggests that the clue to freedom is how we are determined. So we've got this basic idea that we have under certain conditions or freedom and we have to think about what's required in order for there to be freedom. And the one idea which is recognized on both sides, at least to a certain extent, certainly by the incompatibilists and, certain, and also by some of the compatibilists, not all of them, is the idea that if an agent acts freely, then it must be the case that that agent could have done otherwise. If it's the case that an agent acts freely, performs a certain action, then it must be the case that she has alternative possibilities. So if I perform action A and I'm free, then under some interpretation, it must be the case that I could have performed some other action or perhaps not performed any action at all. So alternative possibilities is a key to trying to understand the different positions and to try to understand what freedom involves. Now, with respect to alternative possibilities, the real question over here is, how do we interpret it? 
And we're going to get two different interpretations from our thought experiment in thinking about just what is required for there to be alternative possibilities. So the first thought experiment involves the incompatibilist scenario. Now, for the incompatibilists, they argue that if determinism is true, there can't be any forking paths, so we've got a single line of development that the world is going to take. It's going to unfold, as it were, on a single track, and for them, that's not going to allow for any kind of freedom. Freedom rather requires the an unconditional interpretation of alternative possibilities. Now, the claim is that we interpret the concept of alternative possibilities for the incompatibilists in this particular way. It must be the case when the agent performs that action, performs action A, that it could have been that the agent could have performed action B. Alternative possibilities requires that at a certain time, not only could she perform action A, but she could also perform action B. Okay, so um, I'm going to the store and I have a choice between buying a chocolate and buying a healthy snack. So perhaps a sugar-reduced, oil-reduced packet of crisps, um, which I should get, uh, according to my dietitian, or I can get the chocolate that I really want. Okay. Now, let's just say for a moment that I choose the chocolate. Okay. Um, now let's return to this debate between compatibilists and incompatibilists. So compatibilists are saying that even, even if the world is such that at point one, when I walk into the store and I see that chocolate and I see the packet of crisps, even if it is the case that it is determined which one I'm going to ultimately choose, the compatibilist is saying my choice is nevertheless it could nevertheless still be free. It could be free. The incompatibilist is saying, if the world is determined in this way, it can't be free. Now, if you think about that, if you think about that intuitively, a lot of people want to say, well, then I'm an incompatibilist, right? I mean, I'm an incompatibilist. I, I don't want it to be the case that I always choose the chocolate. It must have been possible that I could have chosen the, the, the healthier snack, right? So this gives us a robust interpretation of alternative possibilities, but it is in itself problematic when you come to think of it. When we think of an agent as having freedom of action and being responsible for her action, we really think that the action is going to be up to her, that the action is going to be within her control. But it's very odd that here we've got two agents who are intrinsically identical, there's no difference between them, operating in identical circumstances, and yet the action could go either way. It could either be the case that, for example, she performs a moral action given the situation she's in, or it could be the case that she performs, say, a prudential action in the circumstances in which she is in. But this suggests that, in fact, there is control. Because how could identical agents be acting differently if the action is going to be within the control of the agent? But again, how could we differentiate between the two of them when there's no prior intrinsic difference between them? They've got exactly the same reasons to begin with. They're going through the same process of rational deliberation in thinking about the reasons and how to act. And yet we've got a differential outcome.
But with that differential outcome, it seems merely a matter of luck, as many of the critics would say, whether she performs the morally correct action or whether she performs a merely prudential action. And so this raises a number of problems with the account. Further, if you think about it, it's a very odd notion of a free action, maybe not an entirely coherent one, when we're suggesting that in order for an agent to be able to act freely, it must be the case that she could act against her choices or against her best reasons, again, depending on where we draw the line at a particular time. So certainly the incompatibilist has a very, very robust interpretation of what alternative possibilities are on how we interpret the idea that on acting she could have done otherwise. But as we see, it's a problematic interpretation. What that means is when you walk into that store and your willpower is low, right? Uh, and you really want that chocolate and you don't really value the, the healthy snack much. Um, Given, given that, given my psychological makeup at that time, it seems correct that I must choose the chocolate, right? If, if it was such that I, st I had all of those reasons for choosing the chocolate over, over the, the, the healthy snack, and I still went and got the healthy snack anyway, as, then it seems like that choice is not really a free choice to get the healthy snack. It seems like it's a a capricious choice. It seems like it's not really related to my reasons properly. And it's not really my action at all, right? So, so really what the compatibilist is saying is that the, what the incompatibilist is demanding is unreasonable. It doesn't actually enhance your freedom in, in a way that we want. It's not the kind of freedom we want. And so the compatibilist is saying your, your choices can be both determined and free and if what you really want is the option to have done otherwise, it's going to require you to act against your reasons, which doesn't seem like your action at all, and it doesn't seem like a free action. All right, so I'm going to try and throw a little spanner in the works. So I understand the conflict is this, that you either have freedom of action, but that comes with a price, which is that you could be acting contrary to reason, um, and that would be the price that you pay. And the implication is that there is always a reasonable thing to do and that we could determine that uh, in a mechanistic fashion. Now, as a lawyer, I often think about these things about when you're litigating before a judge, you know, can I know in advance whether I'm going to win or lose? And there's some cases where you do know. In other words, if you know that the judge is going to act rationally, you can plug in the facts of the case to the law and you can determine an outcome in a mathematical, precise way. Um, and there's other cases where there's a clash of values. So for example, you might have a defamation case. Um, so someone has said something defamatory about someone else and the judge has to decide, am I going to hold them liable or not? And there are two values at play. The one is dignity and the other one is free speech. And it's not clear which one trumps. And so what you have is a conflict of values. It is reasonable to use one or the other any, uh, you could have a range of judges and you could imagine given the same set of facts, half will say liable, half will say not liable. And no one would say that the judge did something irrational, even if they're at, in, at, at odds with each other, because we have some level of indeterminacy at the basis of reasons. And so I wonder if there are going to be some set of cases where we say um, it, was a, it was a coin toss as to which set of reasons you picked. Um, neither was irrational, 
And in that case, you were free because you deliberated based on good reasons and you could have gone one way or the other. Okay, look, I think that's a special kind of case, but it might still be problematic. The special kind of case is very similar to the case of Baradun's ass, where you've got this donkey, and it's equidistance between two bales of hay. It's got no reason to go the one way or any reason to go the other way. So the story might go that it's actually going after death because it's got no reasons to, to get the nutrition that is required for it. But I think this is a very unusual type of case. We aren't in that situation mostly. Most we do have at least reasons which outweigh other reasons when we perform a certain action. Now, Mark, going to the case that you're talking about, it seems to me quite reasonable that rational people could disagree under certain conditions. So half might make one judgment and the other half might make a different judgment. But... Um, Again, if we're taking the incompatibilist position, we're going to have a differential outcome despite no differences. So in the particular judges that we're going to be looking at, their doppelgangers would have to be able to make different decisions. And if you, for example, think that the one is better than the other, it's very difficult to see how you could differentially make that attribution when there's no prior difference between them and their doppelgangers. So I still think that we are going to have a problem. But again, just realize those are special cases, not the kind of case that we normally have, where an agent does have reasons which outweigh other reasons when she performs the action that she does. So I'm going to push back and say that it's not a special case, um, that when we're dealing with anything that um, is in the realm of value, so moral choices or aesthetic choices, there's going to be some level of reasonable people can differ on this question. So whether you, you know, like um, chocolate or vanilla um, is the kind of thing that it's not determined in advance. Um, you know, you might have a preference the one day and might go differently the other day. Uh, you could imagine having uh, equal preferences on those questions. Um, on a range of moral issues, I think there's going to be a sense in which we say, we're not sure what the right answer is. It could go one way, it could go the other, and both are reasonable. Um, you know, let's say if you were thinking about a triage case, you might say, well, it's a tough choice. You know, reasonable people may differ on this. I, I agree that there's going to be some subset of situations where there's overwhelming reasons to act in the one way. And to then say that you were free to have done otherwise uh, implies that if you did otherwise, you acted irrationally. But those cases are the ones where we want to we want to rely on for accountability sake. So in the situation, for example, where um, Jason's back in the store and he can either purchase the chocolate or shoplift the chocolate. And we say, well, all the reasons are against shoplifting and he does it anyway. We want to say, well, you acted unreasonably and therefore we should be able to hold you personally responsible and you should get punished for it. Um, if people can't act unreasonably, if they are determined along the track, and there is nothing they could have done, well, then our sense of accountability goes out the window as well. And that becomes a, a very difficult uh, bullet to bite. Okay, I'd like to come to the contention that you've just made that if you're a compatibilist, then there's no accountability, there's no freedom and no responsibility. And I'll get to that point in the moment. But first, I want to, again, just address the, the earlier point that you were making. I understand that the idea is that where we've got a value judgment involved, 
it could go either way and rational people might disagree about which way to go, whether you favor this, whether you favor dignity, for example, or whether you're going to be favoring freedom of speech. But the way to assess the incompatibilist interpretation of alternative possibilities, what we call the unconditional one, is that you take a particular judge who's making a particular judgment and you say with respect to that particular judge, he's got a doppelganger in the twin world, which is going to be absolutely identical to this world. And the doppelganger is going to make the alternative judgment. So if your judge goes for dignity, the alternative ju judge is going to, the doppelganger is going to go for freedom of speech as being the greater value. But again, it can't, doesn't seem to me that we've got any notion of a judgment being in the control of the judge if under identical conditions it could go either way. And if there is some point to evaluating the judgments in terms of credit or blameworthiness, it again seems to me very difficult for us to make a differential attribution, given the fact that there's no intrinsic difference between the judge and the judge's doppelganger. Okay, let me then suggest that we look at the alternative scenario. So what exactly is involved when those compatibilists who accept this principle, and not all compatibilists do, what, how do they interpret this idea that you could have done otherwise? Well, their interpretation is, or used to be in the first place, a conditional interpretation. So when an agent acts in a certain way, say performs action A, the idea is to say that she could have done otherwise, is to say this, if she had had different choices, then she would have done otherwise. Or alternatively, if she had different reasons, then she would have made different choices. Or alternatively, if the determinants of her reasons, of her beliefs, or her desires, or of her values had been different, then she would have acquired different beliefs, desires, or values. So the basic principle over here is that when we think of alternative possibilities or we're trying to make sense of what it means to say you could have done otherwise, we're going to do so in a conditional fashion. She would have done otherwise if her choices had been different. She would have chosen otherwise if her reasons had been different or her reasons would have been different if, for example, the world had been different in certain relevant respects. And this is what we call a reason-tracking account of freedom of action. So what we try to capture over here is the basic idea that the free agent is the agent whose actions are going to track her reasons. They're going to track her choices, where her choices track, track the reasons she's got, and where the reasons she has, her beliefs, her desires, and her values are going to track their proper determinants. Desires would be the case of her good or her interests, or maybe later on her projects. Beliefs would be tracking the truth or the evidence, and values might be tracking whatever object of value that they might be. So this is a reason tracking account. It does allow for freedom if the account can be sustained, and it certainly allows therefore for responsibility, including moral responsibility. So the libertarian is going to look at that, that account of the principle of alternative possibilities. And the libertarian is going to say, but that's not satisfying. The only way I could have acted differently is if I had different reasons to act. And the only way I could have had different reasons to act is if whatever caused my current reasons 
wouldn't cause those reasons in that other world where I have different reasons. And the cause of that event would have to be different as well. So you would have to really change the whole world, right? You would, you would have to change everything. So what it comes down to is when you say, I could have acted differently for the compatibilist, you're saying, I could have acted differently in a completely different world, but then it's not me, right? It's not me acting differently. No, I don't think that's what's, what they're saying. They're saying they've got a, a conditional as opposed to an unconditional interpretation. They're saying what's relevant when we think about whether a person has alternative possibilities. What's relevant over here is whether they could have done otherwise if, for example, they had different reasons for acting or if they had made different choices. Now, what the compatibilist is doing is contrasting two types of cases. So take, for example, the person who's acting under conditions of compulsion or under conditions of coercion. That person could not have done otherwise if they were compelled, or we might say if they were coerced to act in a certain kind of fashion. Or if we think of internal impediments to freedom of action, say somebody who's highly addictive or obsessive or compulsive has desires such that given that she has those desires, the root of those desires are going to run irrespective of whatever reasons she has, irrespective of what other judgment she would want to make. That sort of person can't act freely. They don't have freedom of will. Why? Because her actions or their actions cannot track their reasons. Either she's acting because of the external pressures or constraints, or she's acting because of the internal pressures or constraints. But her actions don't reflect her reasons. Now, you contrast that with the free agent. The free agent is the person such that if her reasons had been different, so if, for example, you were more inclined to go for the healthy product, then you would have gone for the healthy product. There wouldn't have been any impediment. Compare that, for example, to the person who's addicted. That person might be addicted to a particular drug. And the question is, if she didn't want to take the drug under that addiction, could she have done otherwise? And the answer is no. Given the addiction, it would have been irresistible. That's the contrast which is going to be drawn by the compatibilist. And let me say, as we go on, it's got a virtue. It's got a number of virtues. In fact, firstly, it captures the idea of what we mean by acting in a particular way. When we say that an agent acts for reasons, what we normally want to say is that had she not had those reasons, she would not have acted that way. That counterfactual is true. And we would want to say that if she had those reasons again under identical circumstances, this is her doppelganger, she would act again the same way under those circumstances. So that's a very important factor over here. It also, as I said, contrasts a free agent with the agent who is not free because the agent who's not free cannot act in a way which is going to be tracking her reasons. And finally, it accords with our normal practice. When we say somebody is not free, we don't say they're not free because they are determined. We say they are not free because they are determined in a particular way. They are compelled or they are forced or they're coerced. We think of us in terms of external constraints. Or they might be brainwashed. They're acquiring states that they would not otherwise acquire or states be independent of truth or independent of the natural 
determinants of our reasons. Or alternatively, they're again going to be subject to those internal impediments. They might be subject to an addiction or to an obsession or to a compulsion. Those are the cases where we say that an agent is not acting freely. Not because she's determined, but because she's determined in those ways. And they, at the same time, give us some indication of the conditions under which she would be acting freely. When, for example, her actions do track her choices, where her choices do track her reasons, and where her reasons do track their proper determinants. She doesn't believe what she does because she's brainwashed. She believes it because of the truth or the facts or the evidence. She doesn't desire what she does because she's being coerced. She desires it because of her interests or because of her projects. And she values what she does because of what indeed is objectively valuable. So the concern that I have is as follows. You've given us the paradigmatic case of someone who is not free, someone who is an addict. So we can imagine the heroin junkie um, who cannot but inject the heroin because they've got this very strong coercive force um, internally requiring them to shoot up. And we say that person is not free, but the person who um, deliberates, let's say, between the shoplifting and the purchasing, well, they've got a set of reasons. Um, and if they act in accordance with those reasons, they'll always do the rational thing. And then they are free, even if they would always pick the same outcome. But here's where I worry is how did they get to that underlying set of reasons? So for example, you know, that person may have through their childhood have taken the view that um, stealing is a bad thing because of the education that they have. Or we could imagine someone saying all property is theft because they grew up with a bunch of Marxists. Um, now, it was some other prior determinant which set those reasons in place. And there are going to be a series of prior determinants which put the entire framework of that individual uh, into step. And so to say that they are free, well, because they relied on reasons, but those reasons themselves were set in place not by the agent, but by the deterministic universe. Um, if they could not have picked a different set of reasons, then it doesn't seem like they're free at all. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with that. So um, think a little bit about it. It's, look, there's an argument which is the consequence argument, which says that if your actions can be traced back to factors which lie beyond your control, for example, your genes or the environment in which you were brought up in, or even going back to the Big Bang, then the consequence of, uh, consequences of those factors, including your actions, would also be beyond your control. And that's a similar argument to the one that you're playing over here. And I think that's problematic. Firstly, there's an issue about what we mean by control, but I won't go into control. I won't go into that aspect over here. More importantly, in which is relevant to what we are talking about over here, it seems to me the problem is how you frame that particular argument. If you frame it in terms of being caused by your genes or your environment or even by the going back to the Big Bang, then it seems particularly problematic. But if you're framing it in terms of what I call the proper determinants of your relevant states over here, so we're thinking about your reasons comprising your desires and your beliefs and your values, and if, for example, well, we'll actually come to this when we think about the next thought experiment to a certain extent. If, for example, we discover that you believe what you do because that happens to be true, 
because of the fats, for example, or you desire what you do because of your particular needs or because of your particular interests, or supposing that you value what you do because that is what is objectively good. If we learn that that is the case, would we say, well, that's compromising your freedom? I don't think that's compromising your freedom. If you frame it in the right way, then I think it's not going to be problematic. If you frame it in terms of your genes, your environment, or going back to the Big Bang, then it looks problematic. But if we frame it in terms of the proper determinants of your states, just holding it at that particular point, then I don't think you're really going to say, well, you're not free because you were determined by the truth. Your beliefs were determined by the truth. You're going to say you're not free, not when your beliefs are determined by the truth, but when you've acted under conditions, say, of brainwashing or hypnotism, or you've been manipulated in terms of what you come to believe. So I wonder, um, you, you just mentioned the term framing. And I wonder how much of that is playing a role here in both the objections um, against libertarianism and against uh, compatibilism. So I want to reframe the compatibilist uh, situation in a way that's very unpalatable um, for the compatibilist. Right. So you're saying one of the virtues of compatibilism is that your reasons cause your actions and your actions track your reasons, right? And your reasons are caused by the world. So your reasons track the world and your reasons are your beliefs and desires. So you believe what is generally true and you desire what is generally good for you. And that generally causes your action. And that seems like a great action to have, right? Why would we complain about that kind of action? Okay, good. So now, so now imagine, imagine we reframe, reframe the situation this way. So we say, I'm going about my day and uh, I encounter a series of people and they say a series of things to me. Um, I encounter a partner who we have, I have a fight with and I encounter my parents who uh, we have a lovely dinner with. Um, and, and then I go to that, that garage shop and I want, to, I want to buy either the chocolate or the, uh, or the, or, or, or the, 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 the healthier snack. Um, and, and I buy the chocolate and I go home and I go to sleep at a certain time that night. Right. So that, that's what happens during my day. Now imagine at the end of that day, we rewind time, right? And someone watches me go about this day, right? So they watch me get up in the morning, have exactly the same fight with my partner, exactly the same dinner with my parents, exactly the same choice at the store buying the chocolate. Um, and then they rewind again, right? And they watch exactly the same things unfold. Um, and they rewind thousands of times, tens of thousands of times, millions of times. And in every single case, I do exactly the same thing. I think this is an argument that's a thought experiment that's put through, put forward by Van Inwagen, I think it is. Um, and, and he says, well, if you, if you see this happen over and over and over again, um, wouldn't it over time, the person watching this over time, wouldn't they start to think, this person couldn't have acted otherwise in any significant sense. And the fact that their, their environment and their reasons cause their actions um, in a deterministic way now doesn't seem like an advantage anymore. It seems like a hindrance to freedom. In Wagen's made a very similar argument against libertarianism, against various versions of libertarianism. So right. you roll back the world and 50 percent of the time you're going to make this choice and 50% of the time you're going to make that choice. There's no great, there's no great advantage in that either. Now, the thing about determinism is that the, the, the compatibilists and particularly the version of compatibilism, which I suppose I'm supporting over here, is saying, well, don't be offended by that 
particular picture. It doesn't matter how many times you roll out the world or run the world. If determinism is true, yes, that's going to be the case. What's important if we're talking about freedom and responsibility and we're talking about our normal notions of freedom and responsibility is that we'd be able to distinguish different pathways within those worlds. So if your actions are determined in one way, then you are free. And if your actions are determined in another way, then you are not free. And it's true, Jason, you can repeat that as many times as you like. We'll have the same outcome. And according to the compatibilist, the agent is still acting freely. Why? Because if she is a free agent, she could have done otherwise in the appropriate sense. What is the appropriate sense? Had her reasons been different, she would have chosen differently. Or had her choices been different, then she would have acted differently. But I, 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 st I still want to push on this point, which is that I, I wonder, you know, when you, when you describe the problem with libertarianism, the problem as you describe it is that me and my doppelganger in another possible world could act differently despite having the same reasons. Um, and that seems problematic because I can't choose which of those I am and it seems outside of my control. And when you frame it that way, that seems like a problem, Yeah. Then I frame the compatibilist position in terms of a rewind and a fast forward, rerun, fast forward, and, th and that seems problematic. And then you have a reframe of, of, of compatibilism, which seems less problematic. I mean, I could reframe libertarianism differently and, and say that's, that's less problematic. How do we decide, right? How do, you know, given that there are, there's intuitive pull behind both positions and a counterintuitive pull behind both positions, um, how, do we de how do we decide? Um, all we can do is just follow the arguments which we find most persuasive. Um, he has a little bit of autobiography, I must say that I'm not sure if it's the case that we all start off as libertarians, but I did start off as a libertarian. But over time, reason has persuaded me that that's not the right position. And I've tried to give you some of the reasons for thinking why I think compatibilism offers a better account. I certainly think it offers an account which is more in keeping with our actual practices. And I think that's, that really is quite a virtue of the account. But of course, there are other challenges to the account, and maybe we ought to be looking at one of them. The, the second thought experiment, the manipulation argument. So this is going to be a version which comes, it's going to be a modified version coming from Melee. Um, you'll, I'll, I'll indicate the ways in which it might be modified. So if determinism is true, according to this particular challenge, we call it the manipulation argument, then the following is possible. We've got an omniscient Diana. She knows all about the conditions of the world and she knows all about the laws of nature. So she knows, for example, what's going to happen in the future given the way things are currently and given the laws of nature. Now, Diana is going to create a zygote and she's going to combine the atoms of the zygote in such a way that an event is going to occur that she wants in 30 years time. Diana, given all the knowledge she has, knows that a zygote, which is so constituted, is going to develop into what we can call, what Melee calls, a fully autonomous agent. So I would think of this as an autonomous compliant or compatibilist compliant agent. Somebody, for example, who has got a rational nature, somebody, for example, whose beliefs, desires, and values are inquired in the right kind of way, who rationally deliberates about how she's going to, how he's going to act under certain conditions. And 
it comes to be that at a certain point in 30 years time, the zygote grows into this character Ernie, this compatibilist, compliant, autonomous agent, and he performs the particular action that she requires of him or that she required of him when she formed the zygote. Now the argument goes, given the way that Ernie has been constituted, the way in which he has been produced, it can't be the case that he has acted freely or could be responsible for his actions. But when you think about it, this unusual way in which this particular zygote came into being is not that different in relevant respects from the way in which any zygote comes into being and the way in which that zygote over time is going to behave or function or operate. The laws are going to be exactly the same, which is going to be applicable to them. So if it's the case that Ernie, given his origin and the way in which he operates, is not free, and can't be held responsible by parity of reasoning in the ordinary case, an ordinary zygote who's not been manufactured by Diana can also be said not to be free or the person that the, or that the zygote grows into cannot be said to be free. And so here you've got an argument which goes against the compatibilist position or it's a challenge to the compatibilist position. So the key elements. Ernie is manipulated. Ernie is manipulated, so it seems, by Diana to perform a certain action. Yet Ernie is what I call compatibilist compliant. He grows into and what we would normally call a fairly good autonomous agent who thinks carefully about how he's going to act, given that his reasons has been formed in the right kind of way, makes his choices and then acts in accordance with that. But given that Ernie has been manipulated by a Diana, satisfying this criterion of being compatibilist compliant is not sufficient for freedom. And then again, by parity of reasoning, if it's not the case in Ernie, then it can't be the case in other cases where the zygote is not manufactured, but grows into a person, but there is exactly the same laws operating in the two sorts of cases. So there's your manipulation argument, and it's an argument against compatibilism. So is, is the problem in that case what sways our intuitions? The fact that in, in the one case, um, he has been manipulated into doing something later in his life, right? Which the compatibilist normally doesn't talk about. He just talks about the world's determining you in such a way that ultimately you'll act. Um, but in, in this case, in this particular thought experiment, his actions are being directly manipulated. Well, indirectly long ago, but because of determinism, it's direct because that person knows, Diana knows that um, if, she, if she manipulates the world in such a way now, she will definitely uh, produce this action by Ernie in 30 years time. Perhaps the action is uh, that Ernie is going to the garage store and he has to choose between the chocolate and, and the, <laughs> the, 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 the healthier snack and he will always choose the chocolate. Or perhaps it's that he will, he'll, he'll press the nuclear button, right? And, 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 and cause World War III or you know, whatever it is. Um, it, it, it seems like when you insert that uh, that um, directedness and intention earlier on in the chain, which is not Ernie's intention, 
then it undermines Ernie's later choice when he acts on that intention, which isn't his. Let's take a slightly different case from the, the chocolate and the health bar case. I think these can distort one's judgments about what's going on over here. So take a case where Ernie's got a choice between saving somebody who's drowning or going on and doing something which would be prudentially to his advantage in his interests, but would then mean that the person is going to drown. Okay, so he's got that kind of choice. And suppose that Ernie chooses to save the person under those conditions. Then the idea over here is, well, look, the writing's been on the wall for 30 years, so to speak, given that Diana has set it up this way. And so you might be persuaded that, well, is Ernie really responsible for what has done? Has Ernie really acted freely? Well, here's my response. I think that he has, or it could be the case that he has. So here's the counter that's got two parts. The first part of the counter is this. Think about what Diana is doing in the case of Ernie. Sure, she's trying to get Ernie to do her bidding, but she's not getting Ernie to do her bidding willy-nilly. Ernie has to do her bidding by satisfying the compatibilist compliant conditions. So the zygote which she has brought about is going to develop a rational nature. That zygote we can imagine, this is part of the circumstances, is going to develop beliefs which are going to be more or less sensitive to the truth or the evidence. It's going to develop desires which are going to be in the first place sensitive to his needs or interests, and then later on going to be sensitive to the particular projects or goals that he might develop. That he's also going to develop a set of values and those values are going to be sensitive to or track whatever is objectively valuable, assuming here over here some, some notion of objective value. That when Ernie comes to think about how he's going to act, he's going to weigh his desires or motives in the light of his beliefs and in the light of his values. And then he's going to choose how to act and then he's going to act for the particular reasons that he has chosen. So here's Ernie who's being compatibilist compliant. Is there any reason so far to suggest that Ernie's not acting freely um, if we kind of bracket out the larger circumstances? So far, no. Normally when we say somebody's not acted freely is when they have been manipulated in a different kind of way. When, for example, they have been brainwashed or they've been hypnotized or they've been coerced or they're not enabled to act on their particular reasons that they might have. Those are the cases where we think it's more problematic. Now here's the second part of the reply. Jason, suppose, we, we're talking hypothetically over here, suppose I can get you to act in a certain way by means of rational persuasion, or suppose I can modify, get you to modify your beliefs by means of rational persuasion. So I say to you, taking the latter, all men are mortal and Socrates is a man and therefore Socrates is mortal. And you believe me because of that. Or I persuade you that when you're in circumstances when somebody is drowning, the right thing to do, even though you've got your own other set of interests, is to save the person if you are able to save the person, if you can swim and you can meet all the relevant conditions which are going to be met over here. And suppose I persuade you to do that. So I persuade you by means of reason. Have I compromised your freedom? 
I think not. I don't think I've compromised your freedom in getting you to believe what you do. And I don't think I've compromised your freedom in getting you to act as you do act. And by parity of reasoning, I think in Ernie's case, his freedom has not been compromised either for exactly the same reason. So long as Diana produces his action, so to speak, in the right kind of way, as a compatibilist compliant agent, Ernie's acting freely and can be held responsible for his actions. Okay, okay. So, so the, kind of, the kind of case that you're reducing Mealy's thought experiment to is a quantum leap case. So I, d- I don't know if you know the quantum leap um, TV series. Uh, it was very popular in the early 2000s, late 1990s, I think it was. Uh, it's, it's about this guy uh, played by Scott Bakula who gets a time machine, goes back in time, and um, he, he, he inhabits someone's body whoever it is that whose life he's trying to fix and he needs to make small adjustments. And as he makes these adjustments, he's got a guy standing next to him with a little computer um, from the future. It's a supercomputer that he's holding that as soon as he makes some sort of difference now, he makes a different choice. Now all sorts of other things will change down the line, uh, both for himself and the characters around him. But what's so interesting is it assumes determinism, right? So it assumes that if he makes this little choice now, there's only one line that the universe will take going forward. Okay. Well, it doesn't, I mean, there's some weirdness there because it doesn't necessarily assume determinism because his choice is not determined. He could do otherwise, but perhaps the, you know, we could have split universe. Anyway, we won't, we won't go into, but, but, but the point is when you watch, when you watch quantum leap, you don't think to yourself, Oh, it's boring because everything's determined, you think, oh no, everyone around him is free. Um, it's just that if he were to, to, to tweak one element of the universe, everything else will go in a certain deterministic chain and that's great. And that's good for everyone involved and everyone is responsible for their choices along that route. But here's the problem, right? The problem is you're cashing out Mealy's case in a way which is quite easy for the compatibilist to think about, right? The compatibilist, you know, if, if you're reducing Diana's change to something similar to a rational persuasive argument about the virtues of saving a drowning person, um, then it seems fine, right? It's, it's, it seems fine. And we want, we want to be in a world where we can change people's minds in a way that doesn't undermine their freedom. But what if we cash out Mealy's thought experiments in a different way so that it's not similar to a rational persuasive argument? It's more like it's, it's, it's more like butterfly, butterfly effect chaos theory, where she makes one tiny change uh, in the world. Uh, she, she, uh, she displaces uh, his, his, the fetus within his mother's womb one centimeter to the left. Um, and it just so happens through the deterministic chain that his brain forms in a slightly different way so that he lands up saving the drowning woman 30 years later, but wouldn't have if, if, uh, if the fetus had, had been moved one centimeter to the right. Then it seems like there's not the kind of cause that we'd want, um, but, but something so completely out of his control as where he was as a fetus within his mother's womb, that seems to really undermine compatibilism. I don't think so. Um, look, in order for the argument to work, it's important that it's got to be Mele's version rather than just any kind of version that you want. It's got, I don't mean his particular version. It's got to be that you've got an agent who's going to be acting in a way which is compatible as compliant. That's how we made the argument. You're, the judgment is in the beginning, the first initial judgment, Ernie's been manipulated, right? 
yet Ernie is compatible as compliant. And therefore, being compatible as compliant is not sufficient in order for you to be acting freely. If you change the terms, well, that's a different kind of argument. And the compatibilist is not going to be taking that particular one on until they see the details of it. So what the compatibilist wants to argue is what I've argued, is that if it's done in accordance with what compatibilism wants, then Ernie has indeed acted freely and is responsible for his action, despite the role that Diana has played. Effectively, Diana has created a fairly idealized case of a free agent. We can be manufactured. Maybe it can be done naturally, but it can also be done in a, in a kind of manufactured way. But in order for the agent to be free, you've got to put certain conditions in place. And the conditions which are put in place are the compatibilist compliant conditions. So it seems that the virtue of the compatibilist account is that we're given a tool set to be able to explain why some people in the world we live in are free because they act in accordance with reasons and why some people are not because um, they are heavily constrained by circumstance, like being brainwashed or like being addicts. Um, it may be that um, people are going to act in a particular direction and there is no other way they could have acted but the nature of the constraint makes the difference for us determining whether they are free or not. And as you say, someone who is acting rationally and cannot help but accept the logical outcome of a syllogism is not unfree because of that. Um, they are free because they have acted in accordance with reason. That's it. Uh, well, Mark, I have to say this has been an absolutely breathtaking uh, conversation. Um, this is kind of going into the weeds. So I think we're going to give our, our viewers, um, you know, their money's worth on the show. And we've, we've enjoyed this uh, immensely. And uh, we'd love to have you back for uh, further conversations. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. It's been great seeing the two of you again. <laughs>